Guys, holy, holy and holiness, the concepts and the words, are pretty foreign to the culture we inhabit today and, and actually probably a little foreign also just to the church. To talk about holiness or being holy sounds sort of old-fashioned, which is a shame, of course. It's a huge theme throughout Scripture, and it is the key qualifier or description of God for himself, that God is holy. To be holy internally, inherently within the person or the thing that is holy is to be pure and to be unadulterated. It is to be all and only what a thing or a person should be, nothing that they shouldn't be. God says he is holy. He's pure and only all that he should be and nothing that he shouldn't be. It also means in relationship to other things, it means to be holy is to be set apart. So if God makes something or someone holy, he sets them apart for his unique use. God is holy internally, he's holy in relationship. And because of that, it's a requirement by God that those who interact with him, especially freely and certainly eternally, be holy like he is holy. Be perfect as God is perfect. Listen to this from Leviticus 11. Leviticus is one of those Old Testament books that Christians rarely read. It's a little bit of deep water. And primarily it's for the priesthood under the Old Covenant. It's what offerings to offer and when and how and what all that looked like. But in the middle of what are called these holiness codes, God said this, Leviticus 11:44. He said, I am Yahweh, your God. So I am that I am. I'm the eternally omnipotent reality God. I'm God and you're my people because I'm your God specifically. Because that's true, he said, consecrate yourselves, which means make yourselves holy. The word there from the Hebrew is the same as holy. Make yourselves holy, therefore, and be holy for I am holy. You be holy in relationship with me because I am holy. You be holy because I'm holy. You be pure because I'm pure. You be set apart for me because I am set apart, as it were, uniquely to you. Now, if you read the Old Testament, you know it didn't work out very well. Holiness didn't work out very well for Israel, did it? Be quick to say, yes. Yeah, where do you want it? Sure. <laughs> Uh, where was I? <laughs> usually, usually I'm good on this. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, sorry, Israel, Israel in the Old Testament, be holy. When we read Israel's story, there may be a temptation on our part to point them out as deficient in a way we're not. They weren't. They're representative. Uh, we weren't. We aren't better than Israel. And we weren't better than Adam and Eve. And the thing isn't to look at them and say they weren't holy or they blew it. It's to understand their characteristic of you and me. So when we read their story, we understand God told them to be holy and they're not. And you come to the realization through all those experiences of sin and rebellion, you finally understand that unless God makes them holy, they'll never be holy. God has to make them holy. And that's why in Jeremiah 31, verse 31 and following, God who instituted the covenant at Sinai that they lived under, that we call the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, God told them, one day I'm going to make a new covenant with you. I'm going to make a new covenant, and when I do, it'll be different than this one because I'll absolutely clear your sins. You'll be free. You'll be holy from your sins. And I'll write something in your heart. I'll put my word, my law in your heart. And it comes up in other places like Ezekiel. I'll replace your heart of stone with the heart of flesh. But God said, I get it. This was never going to make you holy. These commands do this, be holy and live, was never going to happen unless God did it. And that's why he said he would institute a new covenant. He would give us the holiness we could never achieve on our own. And of course he did that through Jesus Christ. We talk about the gospel, and the gospel is the implementation, it's the beginning, it's the initiation of the new covenant. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ declares Jesus suffered the just punishment of God for us, for our sin, in his death on the cross. You read the epistle to the Hebrews, Jesus acted as both the high priest and the sacrifice. When he offered himself willingly on the cross, you remember he said, no one can take my life from me. We talk about the crucifixion and that narrative story, and it looks like the Jews and the Romans, representing all of humanity, all of mankind, did something to Jesus, but none of that would have occurred without God's foreordained will and Jesus' willingness. He says, no one can take my life from me. He did all that voluntarily. He acted in the role of both the high priest and the sacrifice. And with our sin paid for or covered, God now clothes those who believe in Jesus with Christ's own righteousness, with Christ's holiness. The command to be holy is fulfilled in us because Christ is holy and through the gospel we are in Christ and Christ is in us. We're holy because of a new covenant and because of Jesus. Listen to this. In fact, you can turn to 1 Peter 1 if you have a Bible there or your app open. 1 Peter 1, look at the first two verses there. Uh, Peter starts, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect or chosen exiles. He goes into the dispersion area of modern Turkey they're from. But he says, we're just going to connect links here. They're elect exiles, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now that's a mouthful, but let's take that apart to get this key point. Peter tells the elect exiles, that's Christians, that's believers, that's who've entrusted themselves to Jesus, that they're made holy by the Spirit of God based on the blood of Jesus. And when it says obedience to Jesus Christ, that's the gospel. This is just like Romans 1 verse 5. The obedience there is obedience to believe in Jesus for salvation, for our justification. So under the new covenant, the blood of Christ has been shed and we are made holy by that, the Spirit applying that holiness to us. The Spirit of God makes us holy through the Son of God's sacrifice and blood. We, the impure, are now perfectly pure. We who were separated from God are His beloved children. We have now been set apart from our point of origin as citizens of this dark kingdom. We've been now set apart out of this to God himself. In verse 2 there, when it said the Spirit sanctifies us, that's simply the Greek word for made us holy. In fact, guys, when you read your Bibles, if you read the Greek version of the Old Testament and it talks about the Jews as God's holy ones, it uses the term hagios. That's, it's holy. When you read the New Testament and you read the introduction to the epistles and it says to the saints, it's the same word. It's to the holy ones. When God addresses his children in the New Testament, when he addresses his people in the Old Testament, those who were his by faith, he calls them holy ones. They're set apart for him, holy ones. So in Christ, we who were unholy are now made holy. God's work of holiness has been accomplished in us because we're in Christ. This is the third of five messages from 1 Peter, looking at the ways we're called to live out life as exiles on planet Earth. If you remember the first lesson in this series, it was simply that Christians are exiles on Earth. And this language is strong in 1 Peter. He says, heaven's our home. Where Christ is, that's where your home is as a believer. And so for right now, that's heaven. Now, one day, Jesus will reign on Earth and heaven for us Christ's presence will be here on the earth. That's not true right now. Heaven is our home. We're exiles on earth. We're like ambassadors that so we have a temporary assignment into a foreign land. And while there, we're representing Christ's interest. We represent another king and another kingdom while we're here. We're exiles, pilgrims, sojourners. The second week, we said that as exiles, as Christ's on earth, we're called to suffer. 
you know, guys, part of the trouble with that lesson is we have it generally, not always, but generally, so good, especially materially in the time and the place we live, that suffering strikes us as some odd thing, something to be immediately corrected, and that's not a biblical view. We're like everyone else on this planet in that we suffer because there's sin and death still on planet Earth. There's the effects of sin and death all around us, and that produces suffering in our lives. But additionally, in addition to that, Peter said, guys, don't be surprised when you suffer as a Christian. You're called to suffer. Christ suffered. You're going to suffer because you belong to Christ. That was the second lesson. Today we're looking at life as exiles who've been made holy, been set aside for God in this foreign land. And this is what we're set aside for in part as exiles, to offer spiritual sacrifices to God, to declare or make known his greatness to those in this dark kingdom as a holy priesthood. That God says he makes us holy that we are a new covenant priesthood and that as priests we do at least a couple things. We offer sacrifices to God vertically and we proclaim truth about God horizontally. That's what we'll look at this morning. Again, if you've got your Bible, this is from 1 Peter chapter 1. These are verses 14 through 19. We saw in chapter 2, or verse 2, that we're holy we are God's holy ones in Christ. The Spirit has applied the value of the blood of Christ to us. We have a new birth. God's new life is within us. We're already holy. In these verses, Peter says the same thing to us that God said to the Jews, his people in the Old Covenant, be holy. Verses 14 through 19, Peter wrote, As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, that old lifestyle, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, and this is Leviticus 11, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed, you were bought back. Uh, that is the, the price of your holiness, of your being set apart to God, it's been paid. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with, with perishable things like silver or gold. This is kind of interesting. If you talk to us about things that last, silver and gold would probably be at the top of the list because they don't wear, they don't wear out. But God says no in the big picture. They actually do wear out because they're consumed when this world as it is, is burned up one day in fire. Peter talks about that in his second epistle. So not even with something as lasting as silver or gold, he says, you've been ransomed, you've been made holy with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. If you go down to verse 22, in our obedience to Christ, we've been purified. It's the same word group, hagios, made holy in Christ. So not only, Peter says, are we holy? We're holy in Christ. We have Christ's righteousness, and we've been set apart for God in Christ. But like the sons of Aaron in the Old Testament, we've also been called out by God to be his holy priesthood. We're not just holy. We're holy priests. So if you look in chapter 2 there, verse 5, Peter says, You yourselves are like living stones. You're being built up as a spiritual house, and that would mean a temple. You're being built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Peter says, in fact, in our day, believers are both the temple and the priests in the temple. We're a holy priesthood. You look down from there at verse 9, he says, you're a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, and you're a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession. Your study sheet has a couple other references where it talks about believers being called as a priest 
or a priesthood. And guys, this would apply to every believer. You remember in the Old Covenant, only men were priests. And in the New Covenant, men and women are priests, boys and girls are priests. If you have the Holy Spirit, if you've trusted in Christ and have His Spirit, you are holy and you are a priest before God, every one of us. You know, if you were a Jew back in the day and you said, what does it look like to be a priest? For, for the Jew, this would have been, we know what priests do. We know what that looks like. For us, at least a few things. One, priests act as mediators. They were stand-ins. They were go-betweens between God and his people. So they represent others to God. The priest faces God for the people who have sinned. They represent those folks to God. They represent God to others. They're the in-between. They offer worship to God. They also give instruction. They declare God and his ways. Remember, the priests were the ones who would have the most regular occasion to be in the scriptures, in the scrolls. It would have been much more limited. It's not like a Bible on every app or every pew as it is today that was far more limited in their day. So under the old covenant God had with Israel, you can read about this, by the way. It starts in Exodus 28, goes into 29. Uh, God said, among all the tribes of Israel, I'm picking the tribe of Levi. And from within the tribe of Levi, I'm picking Aaron and Aaron's sons. They're going to be the priesthood. And out of that priesthood, of course, would be the high priest. But it's, it's from Aaron's line out of Levi that I'm going to appoint my priests, my priesthood, it's very, very limited. And what they did was they had Aaron and his sons, and this would have occurred generation to generation, come before God, a bull and a ram were slaughtered. And the blood of the bull and the ram was sprinkled on Aaron and his sons. And it was that blood that sanctified them, that set them apart to be priests. There's also a scapegoat, which is a little different issue I'm not going to get into. So the, the animal blood sprinkled on them, sanctified them as priests. We won't get into all this again, but they also were anointed with a particular anointing oil, the special anointing oil that God told them how to make. And then they would also wear the garbs, the garments of the priest. And most people are somewhat familiar with the high priest garments. It's a certain uh, dress, linen, and there's an ephod with stones on it. But God said, I'm setting you apart as my priests by the blood of these offerings, by this anointing oil, and you're going to be mine, and you're going to sacrifice to me. You're going to be my go-between between me and my people. It was the blood of the sacrifices, the anointing oil, and the clothing God ordained that set them apart for their special service. Now, you and I have something similar. It's not the same, but we have something similar, the means by which God has set us aside as his priests. So, 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19 again, you were ransomed, he says, verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. Our being set aside as a priest, set apart as a priest, was not by some animal sacrifice, but it was in fact by Christ's very own blood, his life, his blood is what sets us apart in our priesthood. Christ's righteousness becomes our holy or priestly garments, our clothing. You see this, Second uh, uh, Corinthians talks about Christ is our righteousness. It's if, if the priestly clothing is Christ's righteousness we're wrapped in. And based on the atonement, this goes back to chapter 1, verse 2, on the atonement of Christ's blood and his righteousness applied to us, the Holy Spirit anoints us for our holy calling as a priesthood to God. So we have, similarly to Aaron and his sons, God has specifically set us apart, made us holy as his priesthood. What we're talking about this morning, if I said to you, you're holy, you might have an initial thought or reaction that I'm not holy. And by that, you, you might be feeling like, um, I sinned this morning in thought, word, or deed. Or I sin regularly. And you're thinking about practically the ways we fail. What we're talking about this morning is positional holiness. 
It's always true, no matter what you do, because it's related to our standing in Christ and Christ in us. If you think about Aaron and his sons, the priesthood that followed after Aaron, they were not always holy or righteous. In fact, you remember that Aaron's descendant condemned Jesus to death as the high priest. He was still a priest. Their personal sin didn't remove the fact that God had set them apart as his priest, as his priesthood. That always remained constant. And that's what we're talking about this morning, the positional holiness that we have because Christ's blood covers us. We've been sanctified. We've been made holy by Jesus himself. When it comes to the command, and, and Peter referenced that in chapter 1, he referenced Leviticus 11, be holy, live holy. You know, let your life look holy the way God is holy. That's the day-to-day -day holiness that you and I aspire to and fail at. Bill Bider's got a message coming up next month in October in which Bill's going to be highlighting much more fully along that theme. What does it look like practically for you and I to be holy, to live holy, to look like we're set apart for God just in the day-to-day -day living that's our life. What does that look like? Bill will be taking up that theme next month. This morning we're talking about the positional reality. Guys, on your worst day, you are a priest. On our worst service, we are a priesthood offering something to God because we're sanctified, set apart in Christ. We're called to live it out practically. We do that poorly, no doubt. Some days better than others. But we are ultimately positionally holy in Christ. So by the blood of Christ, by his righteousness, clothing us, the spirit settings us apart, we are God's holy priesthood. That's a reality. Whether you know it or whether you live it, it's already true. So we want to aspire nobly to live up to that. So if I'm a New Testament, New Covenant priest, what does that look like? What does that look like? I want to focus on the two things that Peter talks about. There's other things that we could cover, but I want to focus on the two primary things Peter talks about. For the Jews, if I think priesthood and what the priest does, I'm thinking of a temple, a physical temple. I'm thinking of a physical altar. I'm thinking of sacrifices, of animals being slain blood being poured out, carcass being burned up on that altar. That's what priests did. Not true for us, though we have a similar calling to be thoughtful, focused the way God wants us to on offering certain things to him. So Peter tells us new covenant priests in exile do at least these two things. This is his focus. One, they offer sacrifices to God. There's still that thought of we are coming before God and we are offering him something. We're offering a sacrifice. And second, they testify of God to others. So they proclaim or they make something known to the world around them. Uh, this is 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 9, and you'll see both of these here. So if you look at verse 4, Peter says, You come to him to Christ. Christ is a living stone. He's like the cornerstone of the new temple. We're living stones too, he says. Jesus was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he's chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. We're the temple in this view. Built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Two, for this reason, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You and I are being built up not only as the, as the church or the temple, but we are being built up to offer sacrifices to God. Verse 9 shows the horizontal, the proclamation or making God and His excellencies known to those around us. Verse 9 says... You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why is that? To what end? Well, that you may proclaim, make known, declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Peter focuses on two elements of the priesthood, sacrifices to God 
and proclamation to others about God. That first one, sacrifices to God, I don't know what comes to your mind, what springs to mind if I say what kind of sacrifices have you been making to God. The language may be foreign to us just conceptually. And we'll, we'll fill this out a little bit. So if I was a Jew back in the day and you say, Mike, Mike's making an offering, a sacrifice to God, I'm probably thinking of a lamb or a goat or a sheep or oil or grain. All of these things would have been brought by the Jews as sacrifices. The first thing that I want to know, this is, uh, this is Psalm 51, verse 17, and this is David's great psalm of contrition and repentance. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had then murdered, had murdered, her husband Uriah. And when he comes to God in repentance, apart from some other things, he says this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In that same psalm, he says, Lord, I know that it's not just sacrifices and offerings you want. In other words, you know, you and I can go through the motions of something and our heart's not in it. And a Jew could certainly bring an offering to the temple at the altar and his heart not be in it. And that's why David says, Lord, I know that the sacrifices of God are a broken heart. I'm broken over my sin." I see the distance between your call and the way I live. I feel broken, I'm contrite over that. And I bring this humility to God. Everything that we do, God willing, we bring to God in humility. Uh, you're God, we're not. We're holy because you made us holy. We're humble before you, Lord. That's what we're bringing in all of our offerings, all of our sacrifices. It should at least start there. I want to switch from Peter to Paul to talk about the language of sacrifice in the New Testament. Peter doesn't fill it out for us. But Paul uses this same term in a couple of different ways. So listen to this from Philippians 4, verse 18. Now, Paul's in prison, you remember, when he writes this. And his friends in Philippi had sent him some money. And so he's written his epistle back, but he says this related to their gift. He said, I've received full payment and more. In other words, I have plenty. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Now, they'd sent him some money. They sent him a check. They sent him a mail order, if you will. This is how he describes them. What you sent is a fragrant offering. Now, even for pagans in that day, when you burned an animal on the altar... You know, if you go by McDonald's, if you drive down Wanamaker and you smell burning beef, unless you're a vegan, it smells good. God said, related to the sacrifices, he said the animal aroma being burned on the altar would be to him a soothing aroma. But also incense was put, as well as salt, on most of the offerings. And so when something was burned, there would have been this fragrant aroma. Animal aside, there would have been incense. You know, as a Roman Catholic boy growing up, I loved the smell of incense. And it would be used at these different services. Loved the smell. It's like, you can't miss that, right? You walk in the building and there it is. Well, Paul says that the gift they sent to him was to God, like one of those aromas off the altar. It was this fragrant aroma. He says it was a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now put this in perspective, they sent Paul a gift and Paul called it a sacrifice to God. So when we're thinking about what does sacrifice look like for us? Well, Paul said providing for another believer was a sacrifice offered to God. That the check, the money they gave Paul God said he accepted as a sacrifice to him. When we support other believers practically, financially, meals, child care, prayer, fellowship, Paul says those are sacrifices to God. You remember even in the um, Old Testament priesthood, if you gave an offering to God, if you brought an animal to the altar with, with few exceptions, the priest took part of that offering. 
part of what you gave didn't go up in smoke on the altar. It went horizontally to the priesthood. That's in part how they were supported. We're giving something to other believers horizontally, and God says he counts it as a sacrifice vertically. Expenditures in money, time, energy towards others are a great indicator of whether our lives are offerings to God or not. You know, we've said historically, if you look at your checkbook, if you look at your calendar, you've got a pretty good idea of where your time, your money, your heart really lies. So if you want to know if you're offering sacrifices as a New Testament, New Covenant priest, what is your checkbook or your credit card or whatever that looks like? What does your calendar look like? Where are we spending ourselves? Because these are sacrifices or they're not. Do we give generously to the church in our finances? Do we make ourselves available to serve in the church? Starting, by the way, here at home. We'll talk about proclamation outside the church in a minute. But God's life and our role as priesthood always starts within the family household, within the family of faith. That's what all this is about. So there's always opportunities to serve, by the way. And when you're serving others, God says it's a sacrifice to him. So you can do that here on Sunday morning. There's greeters, there's nursery workers, there's primary Sunday school teachers, there's gals that make coffee, there's an event coming up, Fall Fest coming up that still needs volunteers, I believe. The, the ways we serve each other, God says he counts that as sacrifices made to him. Do we see helping brothers and sisters in the faith as a sacrifice? Tom Lindsay hand, heads up our helping ministry called Chore Corps. And it's just a group of people who've said, hey, we'll be available. As we're able, we'll be available. And so when something's needed, you let us know and we'll come. And it's not complicated. It just means I come and I help somebody at a house that they just need a little bit of help, a brother or sister in the faith. God says those things are sacrifices to him. So Paul says here, that sacrifices for you and I as new covenant priests are what we do. The funds we give, the ways we support other people, believers in Christ, brothers and sisters, we're giving as it were, we're serving vertically, but God says there's a, or excuse me, horizontally, but there's a vertical component to that that God says he counts as this pleasing aroma it's a sacrifice that delights his heart, what we do, sacrifice. If you look at Hebrews 13, 15, the language here is sacrifice, not as what we do, but as what we say, what we articulate. So Hebrews 13, 15 says, through him, through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. What's that look like? Well, it's the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. It's what we say. Sacrifice is what we say to and about God. Verbally declaring God's goodness is one of our priestly duties. So when we come on Sunday morning, everyone doesn't love to sing, I know. But singing is one of the ways we give God a sacrifice of praise because in song we are professing those things that are true of him. We're describing his excellencies. Uh, I, I, I love our worship and singing. I love singing. The truth of what you say pulls you right back into the truth about God himself. You are built up when you worship, when you sacrifice in song, whether we sing well or not. You know, if your little child sang to you, you don't care if they're on key. You're delighted that they're singing to you or for you. And that's God's heart towards us. It's not how well we sing, it's that we sing. And it's that we're singing about him, who he is, what he's like. That's a sacrifice of praise. It's also telling others how God has blessed us. Telling others how God has blessed us. I think this was a Sunday school song our girls learned when they were little. And the, song, the words of the song said, stop and let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. So in our household, we would just be passing each other and we would say, stop <laughs> and let me tell you. you know, we'd, sing, we'd sing the line, the ditty, what the Lord has done for me. That's a sacrifice of praise. 
It's telling brothers and sisters, it's bragging on God. It's talking to others about what God has done in us or through us or for us. That's a sacrifice of praise. Just telling others what God has done. Just telling others. Stop and let me tell you. Uh, the church today, this is 2 Corinthians 6.16, I'm not going there, but the church is called the temple of the living God. You're here this morning, good for you. Because, because you are the temple, right? And you're gathering in the temple, with the temple. That's the place primarily we think of offering sacrifice, right? I don't want to stay at home when the church is meeting. I want to be in and with the church. I'm offering sacrifice of praise to God when I meet with the church. Guys, there's a statistic, a Barner Research, and these, sometimes these numbers are not great, but since COVID, since March, this is their survey results, over 30% of people who attended church once a month or more before COVID are no longer attending church and are not viewing church online. Almost one third of people who were in church buildings together as the church are no longer there and they're not participating, even sitting at home watching. We're not sacrificing when we do that. We gather as the church, you know, Kent's always good on this. The building is not the church, right? In the New Testament, the building is made of living stones, that's people. And it's shorthand to call the building the church. If I say, well, we'll meet at the church, you know, it's the church building. But the people are the church. If we want to worship, if we want to offer a sacrifice of praise, guys, one thing for sure, we ought to be gathering together collectively as the church. Are we meeting in small groups? Uh, Steve, by the way, Sunday school is outstanding. If you weren't here this morning, you missed a good one. I encourage you to watch it online. Steve highlighted there home groups. And I'll highlight here home groups. If you're not meeting with others in some kind of small group setting, you're missing out. In fact, I would just tell you kindly, you're disobeying God's word because there's no way you can fulfill the commandments to New Testament priests and Christians if you're not interacting with a much smaller group of folks than you're live, meeting with here on Sunday mornings. All the one another passages, you cannot do them apart from personal. It's gotta be personal, it's gotta be relational. So meeting in home groups is one of the places and it's one of the ways we offer sacrifice of praise. Guys, I love our home group, Wednesday nights. And one of the things I love about it is we pray, and we pray, we don't just say bless the service, we pray usually for 20 to 30 minutes. And usually we start by thanking God first before we make requests. You know what, I am blessed to hear others thanking God for what he's done or who he is or what he's like. That's a sacrifice of praise in prayer. And I get to hear it just because I'm with my home group. That's where it's occurring. If you're not in a home group, I would certainly invite you to consider getting in one. So the New Testament, our priesthood, your priesthood and mine, part of it is what we do, and that's primarily in how we're serving and providing for others horizontally. God says vertically he accepts that as sacrifice. The other thing we do is we proclaim, we do, and we say, we proclaim those things that are true about God. And the last, Paul rolls all this up in a bundle in Romans 12, verse 1. He says there, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, or it's your reasonable response to what God has done for us. And here the picture is, again, if you were a Jew, or even if you were a pagan, pagans had their own idols and their own altars. They made their own sacrifices. This would have been a common image in that time. But uh, Paul there says, if you took an animal for what was called a whole burnt offering, the priest didn't get any of it. You didn't take any of it home. It was consumed on the altar. All of it went up to God. And Paul says here, we should see ourselves as not just the offerer, but the offering, not just the priest, but like Jesus, the priest and the offering, and that we're placing ourselves on the altar so that we understand all that I am, all that I have, all that I do, all that I think 
is being offered to God like that animal carcass would have been on the altar. That's everything. I'm supposed to see my life day in and day out as an offering or an intentional sacrifice to God. God, I'm getting up this morning. This day is yours. How do I worship you? It's my reasonable service. In the Greek, it's the logical outcome of what God has done for me is to worship him. That's just rational. It just follows. Our sacrifices, by the way, will not all look the same. You know, we, uh, the scripture says do this or do that, but it'll look different in your life and mine. All of us, there'll be some variety. You have spiritual gifts. If you're a Christian, you have spiritual gifts. Part of your sacrifice is serving the body through your spiritual gift. Your gift is not my gift. Mine isn't yours. And even if we both have the same gift, it'll be different the way it comes out. Your offering to God, your sacrifice through serving others will look different than others will be as you use your spiritual gifts. Our physical abilities vary. You may not be up for chore core. You may say, I, I can't lift stuff. I can't build things, whatever. That's fine. There's other things you can do. Financially, we have more or less. The amount's not the thing. You know, Scripture always talks about proportions. In fact, Paul says, give as God has has prospered you. Give proportionate to how God has prospered you. That's going to be different for all, for all of us. It's not going to be the same, but it's part of our offering. The time and the place God has placed us, you'll have opportunities to worship God, to sacrifice to God that I won't and vice versa, just because of who you know, where you live, who your family, who your friends are, that will all vary. As holy priests, we're called to offer sacrifices to God that's ultimately upward in action, word, and then ultimately in everything. And then last, testifying of God outward to others. That's verse 9. You're a royal priesthood that you may make known, that you may declare, that you may publicize the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Part of our priesthood is proclamation. It's making something that's advertising, if you will. And it's advertising God and his goodness. And hopefully this isn't hard. If we're scratching our heads saying, what could I tell someone else about God's excellencies? We're probably off the mark a little bit. These things should come readily to mind. The first, and if you had nothing else, if you're a Christian, you have a testimony about God saving you. And first and constant and preeminent, the excellency, in fact, Peter connects it, the excellencies of God are tied to our salvation. So all of us should be able to proclaim his excellencies by just sharing our testimony with others. For some of us, we came to Christ as adults in our adult years. And we've got a before and we've got an after. And when we talk to people, that's what we share. This was me before, this was my life before I heard the gospel. This is what it looked like. I trusted Christ, God saved me, and I'm so thankful. For others of us, we've grown up in a Christian home. We came to faith early. We can't remember the day we got saved. We can't remember the time we got saved. We can't remember a time we weren't a Christian. And there's a temptation for those folks to say, I don't have a testimony. I'm like, no, you got a, you got a great testimony to God's grace and goodness. You can say, God saved me when I was young. And I'm so thankful for all the things he spared me because I came to faith when I was young. As parents, when our girls were little, our constant prayer, daily prayer for them, Lord, would you save them early so that they grow up knowing you, knowing you in your word. And our constant prayer for our grandchildren is, Lord, would you save them early so that they grow up knowing you and your word in relationship with you. Would you do that? Guys, that's a great testimony. If that's your story, we don't hide that. We tell others, thank God, God saved me when I was little. You've got a story. That's great. And I'm so thankful for what God spared me from. When's the last time you got to share your story with someone else? Your testimony, we typically call that. There, and by the way, on this, we look for God to provide the opportunities. We're not a steamroller. I'm not telling you to go out and bother people, okay? You've, you know, if someone has an agenda for you, you feel it, don't you? We're not talking about agendas like that. 
we're talking about looking for the opportunities God gives us to brag on God, to make his excellencies known to others. And first, that's got to include the gospel. God is good. I'm not. I wasn't. Jesus saved me. That's a message the world around us needs. In fact, Isaiah 43, 20, I'm sure Peter was thinking about this when he wrote this epistle because God spoke there to the Jews, his people in that time frame, and God said, they are my people whom I formed for myself. They're holy, they're mine, they're set apart. Why? That they might declare my praise. You know, the Jews often got this wrong. The sense of holiness to the Jews often meant that the Gentiles were the smelly, ignorant group that couldn't come near. That's never what God intended. Israel was meant to be a light to the nations, which Jesus ultimately is. And that should be true for us as well. We should be lights. We don't exclude ourselves from humanity because we're holy, because as priests, we've got a proclamation responsibility that requires us to interact with others who don't know Christ. We start in the family, in the household, but we go out to proclaim. We should at least be proclaiming our testimony. And you know, beyond that, I mean, did you guys see the stars this morning? The sky was clear, the stars were glorious. Mars is up in the west, Venus is up in the east, kind of this little uh, moon slice is up there, it was glorious. You know, I have no trouble bragging on God about creation, right? I love what God's done in creating the world around us. I have no problem bragging on, is that crazy good what God did? And you know, in Genesis, it says about the stars, he made the stars also. You know, I marvel at the stars every time I see them. I can brag about God's creativity, his artistry in creation. You read the Psalms, this is what you see. Proclamation about God's excellencies, perfect in all he does. So part of our priesthood is meant to be proclamation in which we brag about God to others, and especially others who do not yet know him. If you're a Christian, you've at least got a story. You got a testimony, how God saved you. Let me ask you this, uh, related to testimony. What are we known for by others? And I'm talking about based on what we say, what we proclaim. Do we speak of God to others? Are there people we've known for a long time that don't know we're a Christian? Family, friends, neighbor, for a long, where we've had opportunity and we simply haven't taken it. That, that shouldn't be the case. Do our family and friends hear about God's goodness because they're hearing it from us? Again, one of the things, if you came to faith uh, like I did my story, I was 19 and I was a total pagan and I was miserable. But you know, I came to faith, God saved me, and I started reading my Bible. And guys, I, I didn't know up from down then. I was, I was as ignorant as they come. But you know what? what? What I read in the Bible, I was jazzed about what I was learning. You couldn't have kept me from telling my friends about what I was reading in the Bible. Romans 12, one and two were verses I was quoting to them at our parties because I was so excited about it. You know, typically what you find is somebody that's come out of darkness very consciously, usually as an adult, and into life and light, they feel the difference. And guess what they talk about? Their conversion. Because it's on their mind, because they're enthused about it, because they're excited about it. You'll find it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. If you say, I look at what I proclaim to others and I realize it's almost never about the Lord, I would tell you it's a heart issue. It's not a mouth issue, it's a heart issue because what's in our heart is what we speak. And this is a challenging day, guys, especially related to proclamation and what we say. This isn't just true for social media, but social media becomes a megaphone 
for what we proclaim, potentially at least, right? If we're on social media especially, what kinds of messages are we known for? Are we better known for political views than for Christ? Do we share, proclaim the truth, the excellencies of God as freely as we offer our opinions? You, you see where this goes. What are, we know, what are we proclaiming? Now I'm fine, I'm fine with Christians being involved in the political arena because guess what guys, all politics, you know what? It's moral. All legislation is morality. It's someone's morality. And we're in a participatory frame of government in which Christians can have a say in that. I'm good with that. I think Christians should. It was part of Steve's Sunday School message this morning. We should be. This is the challenge, though. Am I better known for my politics than the gospel? Is my voice louder about the next election than it is eternity and salvation and God and his goodness. That's the thing. It's not that we don't speak to issues of the day, but when people know us, when they've heard us, when our proclamation ends, what was the prevailing thing they heard? What are we known by? What are we known for advertising? What are we bragging about? And in this culture, it takes a real discipline and focus, it takes a priest's kind of focus to say God wants a certain kind of sacrifice and not some other things. So we need to be careful. We need to think about what are we proclaiming to others as Christ's holy priesthood. Malachi 2.7 was an early memory verse for me. Malachi means messenger. The lips of a priest should preserve knowledge and men should seek instruction from his mouth because he's a spokesman for the Lord of hosts. Do people know they could come to you for biblical advice or, or for a good response? Here's something going on. What do you think? What should I do? Uh, you're a priest. You're a priest. Do your lips, do my lips preserve God's knowledge, the knowledge of God so that that's what I can share. That's what I can proclaim with others. We're a holy priesthood through Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. That's what we are. Are we aware of that? Are we sacrificing? You praise what we say, what we do. Are we proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us into his marvelous light? Is that what we're doing? In our priesthood, we offer to God sacrifices of praise, material wealth, physical resources, what we do, what we say, everything ultimately, and then we speak to others of God's greatness, his mercy, his grace. This should be the overflow of a heart that's set on fire because we know God, we know who he is, we know what he's done for us in Christ. Let's stand if you would. I, wanna, I want to offer a sacrifice of praise. We'll recite together part of Psalm 145. Psalm 145, this is verses 1 through 7, and then we'll sing God's praises with the worship group. Can you guys read that? Or